This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. I want to extend a big thank you to my newest patron and fellow armchair detective, Julie Buffett. Your support is really appreciated. This episode contains explicit and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. All cases and stories covered by this podcast are true stories involving real people. The opinions of the host and any interviewees are simply that, opinions. The credibility of any witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. The mail was starting to pile for Gail on the hall table. On Wednesday, there were two letters. On Thursday, there was a small parcel and some small mail. But none of the items were picked up. This was odd. Gail always picked up her mail. She was supposed to be at work but hadn't showed up there either. Her work called her landlord, asking if he knew where she was. Jerry, her landlord, said he would check on her apartment as she also hadn't picked up her mail. He went upstairs, and as he knocked on Gail's door, it swung open, revealing a crime that will be forever engraved in Jerry's mind. This is episode 18, Small Town Girl, Gail Ryan's Story. And this is your host, Genevieve Germain. Just a few items about this podcast. True Crime Real Time is a bi-weekly podcast covering missing persons and unsolved murders. We're available across many platforms such as CastBox, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and many others. Links, information, and pictures relating to the cases or stories we cover can be found on our website at www.truecrimerealtimepod.com or on our Instagram account or on our Facebook page. The links to Instagram, our website, and our Facebook page can be found on the podcast channel description. Photos, as well as any other information, are generally posted at the same time as when the episode is published. Now back to the show. Gail Ryan was born and raised in a small town in the province of New Brunswick in Atlantic Canada, near the Bay of Fundy. There were approximately 3,000 people living there the year she moved to Hamilton, Ontario. This was a big change for a small-town girl. Not only was she 1,500 kilometers or 957 miles away from her childhood home, family, and friends, but she moved from a village of approximately 3,000 people to a city of about 300,000 people. After high school, she enrolled and graduated from a business college while continuing to live with her parents and two younger siblings. After some encouragement from a friend already living in Hamilton, she packed up her things and moved there around the Christmas of 1972. She was a happy, outgoing, and attractive 20-year-old, and although was sometimes a bit homesick, loved the different opportunities the city afforded her and really enjoyed her independence. She had been ready to fly on her own and was excited about it. She was working as a file clerk in the credit department at Robinson's, 
which was a large department store in the city. She was finally going to be able to learn how to drive and had already booked her lessons. She felt perfectly content staying in for a girls' night in, watching TV in her flat, or going out to the bar for a couple of drinks. And she was working hard and saving money, and had already reserved her flight for the trip back home to New Brunswick for that Christmas of 1973. When she first moved to Hamilton, she had lived with the friend that had encouraged her to move, but around April of 1973, she moved in with her boyfriend to a two-room flat they had rented for $80 a month. Around the same time, she was hired in the credit department at Robinson's department store. She had been there for just four months. Her boyfriend was a musician who was also from the province of New Brunswick in Atlantic Canada. The other tenants described Gail and her boyfriend as a cute couple. They would always be holding on to each other and would often come down the stairs with their arms around each other. The relationship wouldn't last, though. Gail's boyfriend found it hard to get work as a musician in the area and had moved back to New Brunswick at the end of August or beginning of September. After her boyfriend left, she started to spend more time with the girls from work. Either they would go out or take turns hosting a dinner party. On Thursday, September 27th, after receiving a call from Robinson's department store to ask about where Gail had been, as she hadn't been at work that day, her landlord Jerry agreed to check on her apartment. After all, they were getting a little concerned as well as her mail had sat for almost two days on the hall table. Jerry walked up the stairs to the second floor of the single-family home to the two-room flat Gail had been renting and knocked on the door. As he knocked, the door opened and Jerry saw the terrible fate that became of young Gail Ryan. Gail's body was laying flat on her back, legs spread on the floor of her room. She was mostly nude and she was laying in a pool of partially dried blood. The police were called immediately. Hamilton, Ontario police officers find Gail Ryan lying dead in a pool of partially congealed dry blood on the floor inside her two-room flat she rented inside the home. Homicide detectives quickly determined that Gail had been murdered and had fought for her life. The struggle was concentrated in the bedroom, suggesting it had started and ended there. Gail was lying flat on her back. She was nude except for a sweater that was pulled up over her head, covering her face. Additionally, a pillow was placed over her head. This may signify some sort of emotional attachment to the victim from the murderer. This often suggests that they have some sort of regret after committing the act. The location and position of her body would also suggest that Gail had been sexually attacked before she was murdered. A broken soft drink bottle was found nearby, likely used in the attack, a weapon of opportunity. They also recovered a butcher's knife with a six-inch blade, another weapon of opportunity. She lay in a pool of partially dried blood, and her Wednesday mail was not picked up. Gail was likely murdered on Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning. The autopsy results confirmed that she was hit on the back of the head, possibly with the soda bottle, and then stabbed multiple times in the chest and neck. I visited the location where Gail was living at the time of her murder. Here's an audio clip of the site description. I'm currently on Jackson Street West. This is the street where purportedly Gail Ryan lived at the time where she was murdered. Just to describe the area, it is a very quiet street. Um, it's very cute. The streets are a bit narrow. It has a very warm residential area feeling and surrounding this little residential nook are bigger buildings of the city and so it's kind of like a little community within the city. Now I'm not sure how that was in 1973 and what state of building uh, Hamilton was under at that time. However, 
these homes would have been here in, in 1973. These are all older homes. They are well-maintained. They're single-family homes. They appear to be single-family homes. So if any of them have rental units in it, they are converted from a single-family home. Now, Gail was actually staying in a two-room flat or, or kind of like a border, I guess. And uh, she was only paying $80 a month that, in 1973 dollars. This seems like a really nice area, to be honest. It's, well, you're in the heart of the city. Walking distance to a bunch of stuff, it's... It's really nice area. I'll take some photos. I don't know, there's just a little bit of a vibe here of fun, I guess. And maybe it's because it's the snow coming down at the time and the jarring differences between the modern, taller buildings in the background with this little nested community in the midst of it with some dead-end streets, some one-way streets, some narrow, more narrow streets and these smaller single-family homes that just gives that vibe to it I, I don't know um, this street runs parallel to Main Street West so it's Main Street West is busy it's wide this street is quaint and narrow there is one new building it's a condominium building at the corner of um, Jackson Street West and Locke Street that would not have been there at the time obviously so I'm not sure actually what would have been there presumably other homes this street as I said runs parallel from uh, Main Street West oh my goodness this area is so cute okay I need to pull over somewhere to take some really pretty pictures and I kind of give you an idea of this neighborhood. I'm going to have to do some research to see what it was like in 1973. I don't know what the apartment was like. I'm assuming very small. Think bachelor pad. Like you have a pull-out sofa maybe that you use as your bed and also slash you can have as a living room and then shared uh, like a kitchenette or a shared kitchen downstairs. I would just, I think it's more like a border rumor kind of. Anyway, I'm going to take some photos of this general area. As a young girl coming from a smaller province, and this is where Gail and I have something in common, and I can really connect to her because we are both from a smaller province. We are both from the same province, actually. Uh, Gail is from New Brunswick. I'm also from New Brunswick. Gail was from a small community in Hampton. Uh, I was not from that community, but also came from a small community. And she moved, she at the age of 1920 wanted to have a little bit of an independence. She was ready and to move on with her life. Like she was ready to start her life. She had been talking to a friend. Her friend convinced her to come move to Hamilton. She moved here. She got a job right away. She was living with her boyfriend. They broke up because he just couldn't find any work. So the last three weeks of her life, she, she was working here. She was drawing close to her friends at work, the girlfriends at work. This would have been a really cute area to live. It gives you that vibe of community. You're really close. You're in the midst of the city, really public transit, walking distance, everything. But you still have that sense of community. And I can draw the same type of feelings and understand the excitement that kind of this area would have brought to her. Um, I too am from a very small community in New Brunswick. I moved to Toronto when I was just 19. It was for uh, school. 
I switched universities, I was ready to start a new life too. And just an adventure, I guess, to guess to, to experience life that I have not experienced before. And I also gravitated towards these types of areas. I rented a lot of apartments or units inside homes that were converted. So, or, you know, they had the landlord was the homeowner and they converted the basement, let's just say as an apartment or whatnot, what have you. And those are the types of place that I gravitated towards as well in, in lieu of buildings, which is kind of where she was. So this one kind of hits home for me because she was a very young girl starting out on her own. She really missed her family and I can attest to that. Um, moving here with not anybody that she didn't know anybody and other than she had her boyfriend who, who left. She was only in Ontario for not even a year. She was going gonna she was gonna go home for Christmas and I think her family was gonna try to convince her to move back home to move back to New Brunswick before she was murdered. This is a really sad story. It's very difficult to say which one of these houses she would have had her apartment in or her flat because none of the articles or the police information give the exact address. However, there is a grainy photo that I can go by, extremely grainy from 1973, that gives you a partial view of the front of the home or the house. Based on this, I've narrowed it down to about four different potential homes. So I will do my best to take some photos of that and then we'll see if we can find any other news articles that could potentially narrow it down further. However, the purpose of the site visit isn't necessarily to see the exact location of death. It's more to do with identifying the area in which that person was located and what that area can tell us about the crime and the victim. And this particular area is a very cute area she lived here. I would have been happy to live on the street, very close to the city, but still really quaint. So that's really great for a young lady that's coming from a small town. It feels safe. It feels safe now in, in, in 2020. I'm sure it was probably the same feeling in 1973. The city would have been a lot smaller then, but I still think that it would have given that same vibe. <laughs> like to extend a thank you to Best Fiends for working with me on this episode of True Crime Real Time. I know I've talked about the casual puzzle game Best Fiends before, but this game really is a must play for me. And with a 5 star rating on Apple and Google Play, I'm not surprised. Best Fiends is a puzzle game that has a really cute story and engages your brain as you solve challenging and fun puzzles on all these different levels, which helps keep my mind sharp and ready for research. One of the best features is that you can virtually play it anywhere, since no internet connection is needed. This is great for those moments when you're on a plane or traveling by subway or metro, which is fantastic news for me because I need to fly to Alberta and then Quebec really soon. Not to mention that it's a casual game and anyone can play it. Plus, it's really fun. The great thing about this game is you can just pick it up and play a few rounds between errands. Just the other day, I snuck in a few rounds while waiting in line at the grocery store instead of my usual staring off into space or reading the ingredients on the back of gum packages. All these little moments add up, 
and I'm already at level 75. This game is also visually stimulating with its bright colors and cute characters, and Best Fiends treats the game like a service for their players as they update the game monthly with new levels and events. It's a great game to engage your brain with fun puzzles, and did I mention you get to collect a ton of cute characters? Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. And as a February special, I want to extend a big thank you to Ballsy for partnering with me on this episode of True Crime Real Time. Do you have a Mr. Incrediballs in your life? Want to make him feel special this Valentine's Day but only have lame ideas? I've been there. Why not make him feel special and get him something for his man parts? With fun products like ball wash, sack spray, and nut rub, he can be confident and fresh. Perfect for travel to hot climates or after a vigorous workout. And you don't have to worry about scary chemicals near those jewels because there's no such bullshit in these items. They're laced with essential oils and plant extracts. The Nuts About You gift set is the perfect complete care for the boys option. The gift set includes ball wash, an activated charcoal wash, nut rub, a long-lasting cologne for that below-the-belt man purse that'll have him covered for a long night out or in, and sack spray, a portable deodorizing spray to freshen up when he's on the go. The promotional price for this gift set is $45, and as a true crime real-time listener, you'll get an additional 20% off with promotional code REAL20. That's R-E-A-L 20. So head on over to BallWash.com and grab a package today for your Mr. Incrediballs and help him give his balls the attention they deserve. Law enforcement was able to track down her movements leading up to her murder. On Tuesday afternoon, September 25th, Gail left work in a good mood. She had a driving lesson with Dominion Driving School at 7.30pm that day, which she attended. The school was located on Main Street West, only a few kilometers from her apartment. The lesson ended at 10.15 p.m. She walked across the street from the school and waited a few minutes at a bus stop. An eyewitness who is going into the school to apply for a position as a driving instructor told police that he saw two men who had been walking from the direction of Elmer Hotel and Main Street West and Caroline Street speaking with Gail and it appeared that she knew both of them. Two other witnesses also confirmed that Gail and these two men started walking east along Main Street West. When they were almost a block away, they all turned around and started walking back towards the hotel. They went into the tavern section of the hotel located off of Caroline Street. Some patrons of the tavern did confirm seeing the three at a table within the tavern. Tenants in the house where Gail lived also informed police that she returned home that Tuesday night at around 11.30pm with a male visitor. They did not see the male visitor, however could hear that it was a man walking up the stairs with her to her apartment. At approximately 1 to 1.30 a.m. Wednesday morning, the tenant just below Gail's apartment unit heard a thud followed by two more thuds. He yelled up the stairs for them to be quiet and then didn't hear anything further. Police were not called. It is believed that this is the moment that Gail was sexually attacked and murdered. Gail didn't show up for work on Wednesday and as her brutalized body lay on the floor of her room, her parents received a letter from her, telling them she missed them all, but she was doing fine and doing well. The two men seen with Gail on Tuesday night were described as both being in their 20s. Both were wearing blue jeans and had long hair. 
One was wearing a t-shirt and the other a jacket. On the subject, Acting Staff Inspector George Frid told a Hamilton Spectator reporter at the time, quote, We feel certain the men know we are looking for them. They're either involved in the slaying or are afraid of being accused, end quote. A sketch artist was commissioned to complete a composite sketch of the two men. However, only one was published in the local paper. The sketch accompanied a small article indicating that the man was wanted for questioning with regards to Gail's case. He had visited Gail three times in the week before she was murdered. His last confirmed visit was on the Monday before she was murdered. He was described as being six foot two, weighing 210 pounds, between the ages of 23 and 25. He was also described as being neat and clean, with long blonde hair, good-looking and strongly built. I've uploaded a copy of the composite sketch to the Instagram account, and it will be in the crime article on the True Crime Real-Time website for Gail. I'll let you judge how beneficial the composite sketch would have been. Miraculously, a few tips did come through, but none of them panned out. She was sexually assaulted, hit, and stabbed. Her face was covered by a sweater and a pillow, which may signify some sort of emotional attachment, where they're regretful of being caught or facing the consequences of their actions. Evidence was left at the scene. There was no forced entry. Weapons of opportunity were used. This would point to a man who knew the victim and possibly had a positive relationship with her, but that had gone bad. A man who was young and inexperienced in crime. Who is this ruthless killer? And is he hiding in plain sight? The case is cold now, and has likely been barely touched in the 46 years since the murder took place. The Hamilton police do not have a cold case unit. It's just not in their budget. In fact, it seems as though they can use more resources, officers. The cases are assigned to the homicide detectives in the major crime unit, but newer and more pressing cases always take priority. Even when trying to gather information on this case, they simply couldn't help. It would require the assigned detective to re-review the entire file, taking needed time away from the new cases that are constantly coming in to be able to familiarize themselves with the case in order to be able to answer questions such as, were there any fingerprints or DNA found on the glass bottle or the butcher knife? Was a rape kit completed during the autopsy on Gale? And was viable DNA obtained? Do they have any current viable DNA from the crime scene? And if so, when was the last time the DNA was run through the database to look for matches? Or if there is a fingerprint, when was that last run through? Is the male from the composite sketch believed to be one of the males seen with Gail on the Tuesday night on Main Street West and at the tavern? Were the two males seen with Gail at the tavern ever located? Are there any other composite sketches or updated composite sketches completed? I was told they simply do not have enough resources, and it would seem that due to lack of resources, these cold cases get pushed to the back of the pile and basically collect dust. In the meantime, the family still don't have answers, and there is no justice for Gail. Law enforcement would like to have a cold case unit that could be dedicated to these cases, but it's simply not in the budget. The original $2,000 reward through Crime Stoppers is still in effect. Anyone with information into the assault and murder of Gail Ryan, especially or specifically around the identity of the young man who had visited her three times in the week before her death, at this point he would be between the ages of 69 to 73, please contact the Major Crime Unit with the Hamilton Police at 905-546-3829 or if you wish to remain anonymous, contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477.
Or, alternatively, your tip can be made online by visiting CrimestoppersHamilton.com. And remember, your IP address is blocked. This brings us to the end of Gail Ryan's story. I hope you'll join me next time as we cover the case of Catherine Dow. Catherine was a retired nurse. She was murdered in her home, and the murderer set fire to the home to try to cover up the crime and to remove evidence. Until that episode, here's another podcast that I recommend. Hello, true crime friends. I am Terry Dussold, the host of True Crime and Wine Time, a podcast where I cover many types of true crimes while enjoying wine time. I cover everything from missing persons, serial killers, art thefts, and many gruesome crimes that other podcasts shy away from. Join me for some true crime and wine time. And guys, I'm really excited to tell you, I'm publishing my very first episode on the Canadian Correctional System on Patreon, and research is underway on the second Patreon episode, which will cover the very last two people executed in Canada before capital punishment was abolished. If you want to listen to exclusive episodes, ad-free, and early release episodes, head over to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. There are several different options, ranging from armchair detective to co-producer. The link is in the description. I would also like to thank all of those of you who've taken the time to leave me a positive review. I really appreciate all of your support. Make sure you check us out at truecrimerealtimepod.com to read the true crime article on this episode, as well as see the accompanying photos. Oh,